systematically destroying countries that are on the ban. Okay? So when we talk about the U.S.'s responsibility to admit immigrants and refugees, it's because the U.S. is destroying the countries from which they come. This is not a matter of generosity. This is a matter of obligation. Now, with regard to this infrastructure plan, it's worse than a bad joke. At best, you can expect more toll highways. It's difficult to see how a sewage plant can become a profit center unless you have to deposit 25 cents whenever you flush the toilet and don't laugh. That may be in store. It tries to convince Americans, the majority of whom have not recovered from 2008, that there is a recovery and that if you're not part of it and you're not enjoying it, it's your fault. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and there is so much happening in D.C. There were literally dozens of actions in and around the district, some related to the now infamous State of the Union Address, some dealing rather with the realities we face, like climate change and the U.S. government's involvement in wars and attacks in the Middle East. In the second half of the show, we'll hear voices from outside the White House marking one year of resistance to the Muslim travel ban and resistance to attacks on immigrants and refugees, which has impacted millions of men, women and children. We'll also hear from Richard Wolf and Gerald Horn about that State of the Union address. But first, a few other headlines. A day after Donald Trump failed to even mention climate change in the State of the Union address, a packed town hall was held at George Washington University's Lisner Auditorium for an event called Fossil Free Fast, the Climate Resistance. The organizers, the group 350.org, said the event was to launch the Fossil Free U.S. campaign, which calls for an immediate halt to all fossil fuel projects and a fast and just transition to 100% renewable energy. The event featured Senator Bernie Sanders, Bill McKibben, Sherry Fortland, the Reverend Lennox Yearwood, Antonique Smith, Naomi Klein, Jacqueline Patterson, Mayor Bill de Blasio, and many others. And the program was broadcast live to more than 300 watch parties around the country. Organizers encouraged citizens to take on three tasks to contribute to the transition. One, demand a fast, just transition to a 100% renewables in your community. Two, keep fossil fuels in the ground. And three, don't support the oil and gas industry. Jamika Hodnett, an organizer for the Sierra Club, urged those gathered to not forget the issue of environmental justice. I'm here to share the news that the transition to 100% renewable energy is underway. Already, yes. <laughs> Already, 56 cities and six counties have committed to transition entirely to 100% renewable energy. That's a lot, guys. But even more importantly, a wave of, of momentum is building 
as an unprecedented number of people join in social movements. A movement of communities demanding cleaner energy has made a just and equitable transition the new bar of leadership. As a lead organizer for the Ready for 100 campaign, I coach and support local organizers in cities like Atlanta, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland. I help our organizers create and execute campaigns where the benefits are just and equitable. The work to advance a transition to 100% clean energy is about more than just metrics on how many kilowatt hours of clean energy have been put into use. It's about supporting local environmental justice groups, housing justice advocates, and living wage advocates and organizations. It's about asking what communities need and crafting a plan based on the community's response. I want to be clear. These 100% clean energy commitments mean little if we leave low-income, black, brown, and indigenous communities in the same conditions. <laughs> in the same conditions that an economy based on fossil fuel extraction and burning has left them in. We must work together to ensure that a shift to 100% clean energy addresses, this, addresses the injustice and inequalities of the fossil fuel economy. There will also be a rally at the U.S. Capitol today, February 2nd, when we are airing this show for the Lake Traverse Reservation in North and South Dakota, which is being threatened by a renewed effort to build the controversial Keystone XL pipeline through the Dakotas, Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas, areas which are home to tribal lands. The dangers of the pipeline came to fruition on November 16, 2017, when Keystone XL spilled more than 210,000 gallons of crude oil less than 50 miles from the Lake Traverse Reservation. Now, in Black Lives Matter news, an anti-slavery protest was held January 27th outside the D.C. Embassy of the United Arab Emirates to stop the UAE funding of armed groups in Libya, which imprison, torture, and kill African migrants, in addition to selling them as slaves. To end human trafficking of African migrants to and from Dubai, and to help slavery victims in Dubai return home to their families in Africa. Other actions were held this week to support community control of the police and to support black Palestinian solidarity. And from February 5th through February 10th, the D.C. area Black Lives Matter Week of Action in Schools is happening to bring social justice issues into the classroom and empower students of color. The organization's Teaching for Change, Center for Inspired Teaching, Washington Teachers Union, D.C. educators, as well as community members are collaborating on the D.C. area Black Lives Matter Week of Action in Schools. The week is building on the momentum of the National Black Lives Matter Week of Action in Schools campaign taking place in cities across the country. Now, in culture and media, authors are also speaking truth to power here in D.C., 
at a book event in Northwest D.C. on the night of the State of the Union, I caught up with Georgetown professor Christopher Chambers reading his short story included from the new, very way out fiction anthology, The Obama Inheritance, which is a selection of psychedelic noir and satire aimed at conspiracy theories surrounding the presidency of Barack Obama. Chambers' contribution to the book is about a world where dogs are genetically mutated to be superior to humans. When I spoke to him after the event, he said that in many ways, the Trump presidency proves to be stranger than fiction. The reality is, is that racism, violence, nuclear holocaust, environmental holocaust, as we are seeing now, uh, we've seen this, the CDC being told by the, uh, the administration not to use certain words, so we could have a health holocaust. When things start to get normalized, when the, when the abnormal become normalized, that's when we should be scared. But what artists do is take that abnormal, make it into a wacky story or a wacky painting or a wacky poem, and try to get people to see that, that, that what people are trying to normalize is not normal. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who believe that. I think you, you mentioned something about it during the program that people were kind of lulled to sleep during eight years of Obama. But, you know, this is a president who also bombed. So explain to our listeners how that also wasn't really normal either. Well, President Obama did a lot of aberrant things. I mean, and I have to tell you that, you know, when we put this book together, there are a lot of us, including Walter Mosley, who was not a fan of the president's. But I, I think what was differentiating that with what we have now is, is that it was more of an aspirational thing. Let's say you have a family member who isn't doing right. You're going to be approaching that, coming at that family member a little different than the stranger who's down the street trying to kill you. And that's basically what his attitude was, um, because he did not like the, the, the foreign interventionalism of, of this administration. He did not like the fact that the president took over at a time of economic ferment, and rather than make the, the vast changes that he said he was going to make, or ironically what a lot of the right-wingers thought he was going to do, he tried to stay within the system. He did not like the fact that Obamacare was basically a... Um, a kind of Republican artifice, but what he was basically saying was is that this guy was trying to do to make changes within his his own head of what he thought was right, and he, and basically what we were saying was there were some bad things that went on, and we do address that in these stories. However, I guess it's more like, well, he was bad, but look at what we got now. Now, while the Obama Inheritance book deals largely with fantasy, another new book titled Becoming a Citizen Activist, Stories, Strategies, and Advice for Changing Our World deals with today's hard realities for organizers. The author, Nick Licata, a five-term Seattle City Council member, was often the point person for passing that city's progressive legislation like paid sick leave, raising the minimum wage, police reform, and recognition for homeless camps. He will be speaking Monday, February 5th at noon at the Institute of, for Policy Studies, 1301 Connecticut Avenue, Northwest Suite 600, and at the Bus Boys and Poets 5th and K location at 6.30 p.m., and that's Northwest D.C. as well. In advance of his appearances here, Licata told On the Ground that his book contains strategies for winning 
against the corporatocracy and emphasizes the importance of local activism. There are certain things that can be done even on the local level that can have a major impact on the national level. Paid sick leave and raising the minimum wage were both major national issues that started in cities. And actually, when you think about it, most of the civil rights movement back in the 60s began in the cities. In other words, it's the efforts of individuals working in the local communities that create the momentum for a large political storm to change the the character and the atmosphere of our country. Additional information about Licata's book is at becomingacitizenactivist.org. That's becomingacitizenactivist.org. And finally, on Saturday, February 3rd, there will be dozens of authors and booksellers at the first annual Know Thyself Book Fair, noon to 6 p.m. at the Roots Public Charter School, 15 Kennedy Street in Northwest D.C. That's 15 Kennedy Street in Northwest D.C., And for more information, you can call 202-841-2422. That's 202-841-2422. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, riffs on the State of the Union. Stay with us. Yesterday, a man said to me, said, How can you smile when your world is crumbling down? I said, kiss my seat. When I wanna cry, hey, I take a look around and I see that I'm getting by. And I hold on, hold on. change is coming, change is coming. Hold on, hold on. Don't you worry, don't worry about it, my brother. Hold on. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. And uh, my guest for this segment is Richard Wolf, economist. And it's just after the State of the Union address. I think the first part of the speech was really heavily dealing with economics or voodoo economics or pseudo-economics or something like that. So I wanted to first get your reaction to the State of the Union address. Well, uh, there's an old joke that you can dress up a pig in all kinds of outfits and you can put lipstick on that thing but it never stops being a pig and even if you want to you kind of see what it is that speech was the attempt by somebody whose economic achievements can't possibly be honestly laid before the american people trying to put the best face he could imagine on what he had actually done and what he and the, the republican party together had actually done And it didn't come off real well. I think those of us who follow what he actually did, uh, those in the public who do that, uh, could see through this really quickly. Um, So it wasn't a very good job. But to be fair to Mr. Trump, it wasn't so easy to cover over what he's actually done and try to make it look like it was something really different. That was a tall order, and he didn't pull it off real well. Do you think for the average American who maybe doesn't really follow politics, doesn't really follow economics, that they will just kind of swallow whole cloth his claims about, for example, creation of jobs and not really be be able to kind of drill down into the specifics of what kinds of jobs these are? And, you know, it sounds good. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they'll be 
much fooled. I think those who want to like Mr. Trump, who want to believe in what he's doing, uh, will latch on to the words he said the way they have in other things. Those who follow it even a little bit, who know that his relationship to the truth is, uh, how shall I put it, very relaxed, um, won't. They'll, they'll question, and the minute you do any kind of looking into what he said, uh, you see right away the, the fakery. There really is no nice way uh, to say it. Let, let me give you a few examples just to show you. The single most stunning statistic about African Americans in the last five or six years, or even the entire period since the crash of 2008, the single statistic that anyone who looks at this situation realizes is the killer, is what has happened to the average wealth of African American households or families. In other words, what you see right away is that 2008 was a disaster that it was overwhelmingly African-American families who had been drawn into mortgages that they didn't earn enough to sustain, who lost their homes, who went through the trauma of losing a home, trauma for the adults, the trauma double for the children, and so on. And they are now, therefore, much poorer in terms of their wealth than they were before 2008. They haven't recovered or anything like it. So if you want to know what the last 10 years have meant for the African-American community, the first thing you have to confront is the staggering fact that the only wealth most African-Americans were able to touch was their home. And that's what they lost. And that was taken away from them. And that dwarfs in its impact on African-American communities anything that has happened in any other dimension of their economic lives. An honest president... Uh, would have addressed this problem. What are you going to do about that? How are you going to deal with Instead, this president chose to say nothing at all about it and to focus instead on the fact that the money wages of African-American workers had gone up. Well, let me give Mr. Trump a lesson that maybe will help the rest of you. In economics, we don't care what happens to the price of what you get paid, your money wages, because it means nothing. For example... If you got 10% more wages in your check at the end of the week, but the price of all the groceries and other things you bought went up by 10%, you wouldn't be ahead one nickel. Every extra buck you got would be going to pay the higher price of what you buy. So we have something called real wages in which you adjust the money wage increase for the higher prices. If you look at that, then what we see is a working class, white and black, that has had stagnant real wages for 35 years. That's the real issue that befuddles the economist. That's the issue on which the future of the American economy hangs. That's what the president has to deal with. He, he chose not to deal with that, not to mention it, hoping no one either knows or hoping maybe everybody forgets. And so he can concentrate on the rise in the money wages without confronting that African-American wage earners are in worse shape today than they were 30 years ago, which is the most stunning and important fact a president could address himself to. And I could go on and on, but it's economics made to, to, to try to make yourself look good, to try to make the situation wonderful. It's a very dangerous policy because what it does to most Americans, and this has been true for a long time, it's tries to convince Americans, the majority of whom have not recovered from 2008, that there is a recovery, and that if you're not part of it and you're not enjoying it, 
it's your fault. In other words, you're the isolated bad guy. You're the isolated failure. Because everybody else is having a roaring good time in this recovery. But the truth is, the overwhelming majority of Americans have not recovered in many of the key dimensions of their lives. And as you said in your introduction, quite rightly, even those who have now gotten a job again, having lost it for months or years, are discovering that the job they got pays less, has fewer benefits, and is much less secure than the one they lost, which means you're not recovering, you're in a depressed situation which is shaping your life. An honest president in an honest State of the Union message would have had to deal with that reality. He needed to pretend that wasn't going on, and that's why I don't find the speech anything other than the usual Republican, Trumpian kind of theater, if you like, uh, to substitute for a much scarier reality. Is there anything in particular happening around the unemployment rate that's changed? I mean, we, we, we know that the rate doesn't really reflect the percentage of people who are unemployed. We know that in, in, our, in the African-American community, it's always like twice of the general population, right? But they're able to use these figures now to say that uh, Unemployment, for example, in the African-American community is, is so much lower than it used to be. Well, let me explain exactly what these numbers mean. The way unemployment is calculated, the basic way, goes like this. A survey is conducted. You literally randomly collect people and you ask them a question. Are you working? If the person says yes, they're counted as an employed person. If the person says, no, I'm not working, they are asked the second question. Are you looking for work? If you answer that question, yes, I'm looking, you're counted as an unemployed person. But if you answer the second question, no, I'm not looking, you are considered to be out of the labor force. You're not counted at all. It's very important that people understand that since 2008, the Great Crash, the number of people who answer that second question, I'm not looking, has gone way higher than it was before. In other words, large numbers of people are not being counted as unemployed, not because they got a job, not at all, because they stopped looking. And who are these people? They are women who've gone back into a household kind of existence because they can't get a decent job or a job that pays enough to cover the extra costs of childcare and the other things that they have to, the real problems, as opposed to the public fakery of the political parties. It includes people who are now engaged in illegal activities because the legal job doesn't pay enough or they can't get one. And on and on and on. People who go back to school in the hopes that another credential will get them a job they couldn't otherwise get. All those people who are not counted anymore should be understood as unemployed. They don't have a job. But the statistics of what the rate of unemployment is don't count them. And so you can have a public statement. The unemployment rate has gone down to merely 5%. Yes, but if you look at it and you understand what the numbers mean, that's a statement that the job situation is so bad that millions of people have dropped out of even looking anymore after being discouraged for 10 months uh, and not finding something. That's the first thing. 
And the second thing, which you pointed to earlier, which is just as important, is that we're not in the same place if you lose a job that paid you $60,000 and you get one that pays you twenty-five. If you lose a job that had a real good medical program with it, and now you get a job that has a very poor medical program. If you get a pension or you don't get a pension, if you get sick days off or you don't, the reality is, as every study shows, that the jobs people are now getting are way, way less remunerative, much less good for the family that depends on them than the jobs that were lost. That's why calling it a recovery and crowing about how the unemployment rate is low is really just one step short of straight out lying because you're not conveying what the economic reality is, which is why so many Americans are understandably angry and bitter about what's happening to them and made only more so when they listen to the radio or watch on television someone telling them it's all wonderful, which is what President Trump tried to do. It's so dishonest that a good number of us as economists kind of turn away when the radio or the television announcer starts giving these numbers because we know this is not about informing the public. This is about manipulating public opinion. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. And now for more on the State of the Union Address, I'm joined by Professor Gerald Horn, author, activist, and a frequent contributor to this show and across the Pacifica Network. Well, Gerald, I would call the State of the Union Address the theater of the absurd, but unfortunately it wasn't theater. It was was something happening in real life. So what were your thoughts looking at the State of the Union Address? Well, first of all, I think it's very important to dig beneath the surface. For example, look at the centerpiece issue, which was immigration. I find it not to be accidental that the architect of the draconian immigration plans from the White House, the author, Stephen Miller of Santa Monica, California, assisted by Julie Hahn of the west side of Los Angeles and the former campaign strategist, Steve Bannon, a former Hollywood producer, was also involved at least in the antecedents of this immigration plan. I think California is striking because recall that it was not so long ago that California was the home base for GOP stalwarts like Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon. And now it's the place where Republicans come to die. And this has everything to do with the fact that Latinos, particularly those of Mexican origin, or the plurality of the population of the state of California, and the Republican immigration plans are designed to ensure that no more Californians arise in the United States of America. It is not easy, nor is it simple, to maintain white privilege nor white supremacy if you don't have at least a so-called white majority. And I think that's the underlying issue with regard to immigration. The most explosive aspect of this speech, it seems to me, were the remarks about North Korea. Not only the fact that just before the speech, the ambassador designate to South Korea, Victor Cha, a hawk, was basically told to leave his walking papers and to get out of town because 
he apparently objected to a bloody nose inflicted on North Korea. That is to say, a preemptive military strike. And the fact that the only cabinet secretary singled out for praise was Mad Dog Mattis, the Pentagon chief, helps to give sustenance to that very disturbing thought. But it's not only military war that is contemplated by the Trump team. Uh, just before the State of the Union address, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who also happens to be from Southern California, by the way, basically made statements seeking to weaken the U.S. dollar so as to goose U.S. exports in competition with Japan, China, and the European Union. Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank said that this was a currency war that Washington was launching. Then, just before the remarks by Mr. Trump, he slapped tariffs on solar panels from China and washing machines from South Korea so as to favor U.S. manufacturers, which led to the charge that he was launching a trade war. So this State of the Union address was auguring a number of conflicts, from military conflict to currency conflicts to trade conflicts. Now, with regard to this infrastructure plan, it's worse than a bad joke. At best, you can expect more toll highways. It's difficult to see how a sewage plant can become a profit center unless you have to deposit 25 cents whenever you flush the toilet and don't laugh. That may be in store. Likewise, his plan with regard to reducing drug prices, in my opinion, that was just a shot over the bow at Merck, a major pharmaceutical manufacturer whose CEO, Ken Frazier, who happens to be one of the few African-Americans heading a Fortune 500 corporation, had gotten to hot water with Mr. Trump after he resigned from Mr. Trump's business council in the wake of Mr. Trump's insulting remarks after the Charlottesville Klan march, when Mr. Trump said that there were uh, good people on both sides. I think that it's fair to suggest that Merck is now in Mr. Trump's crosshairs. Likewise, with regard to his plan, allowing cabinet secretaries to dismiss federal employees, that could be a predicate to a major purge of, of the civil service, which could have devastating impact on Washington, D.C., to put it mildly. With regard to this idea of giving veterans choice with regard to health care, that could likewise devastate VA hospitals, Veteran Administration Hospitals, which is a, an example of a single-payer health care system that he now is seeking to apparently destroy with regard to allowing the Food and Drug Administration to release more drugs to market before they're properly tested. I would just ask listeners to put into their search engine the term thalidomide so that you can get an idea of what happens when ill-tested drugs come to the market prematurely. With regard to Iran and his rather negative comments about the nuclear accord, well, that's a multilateral accord that includes the five permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany. So it's going to be very difficult for Mr. Trump bilaterally to nix and void that accord. But perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the State of the Union were the theatrical aspects, the applause at inappropriate moments, for example, when the, the, there was talk about reopening the Guantanamo prison camp, for example, or when there was talk about Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel, for example. And that's not even to get into the question of how human props were used, how the tragedies of families 
were used as a prop for Mr. Trump's theatrics. All in all, this was a disgusting performance. Yeah, definitely. You covered most of the things there. I did see Donald Trump after the speech kicking off Black History Month by gutting a key provision at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that banned racial discrimination by banks. And so right after the speech, he's continuing on in the same vein. No good deed is done. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it. And then he takes credit for the apparent drop in African-American unemployment, although he does not say what he did to accomplish this goal that he's taking credit for. Otherwise, I think it's fair to say that it's like the uh, rooster taking credit for the rising of the sun. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways of measuring unemployment. It's just another way of twisting figures to state an outcome that you like, but it's not necessarily the truth, for sure. Well, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author, activist, and actually author of two new books that we're going to feature in coming weeks. Do you want to tell us about them? Well, one is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. The other is Facing the Rising Sun, African Americans in Japan and the Rise of Afro-Asian Solidarity. Wow. Well, we'll have time to talk about those in the coming weeks, and I look forward to that. Thank you, Gerald. Ditto. Thank you. is obscene We've got it twisted In this lucid dream Baptized in boundaries Schooled in sin Divided by difference Sexuality and skin so we can hate each other and fear each other We can build these walls between each other Baby, blow by blow and brick by brick Keep yourself locked in, yourself locked in Yeah, we can hate each other and fear each other We can build these walls between each other Baby, blow by blow and brick by brick Keep yourself locked in, yourself locked If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And next we're going to hear voices from outside the White House, where on January 27th, hundreds gathered to mark one year of resistance to attacks on immigrants and refugees, which has impacted millions of men, women, and children. The action was sponsored by more than 15 organizations, including Veterans for American Ideals, the National Immigration Law Center, and the Council on American Islamic Relations. No fear. Refugees are welcome here. No hate. 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 
is another organization that has been really extraordinary in terms of leading the resistance. A good friend and a wonderful colleague, uh, please help me welcome the Legislative and Advocacy Council for the American Civil Liberties Union, Manar Wahid. I think we all knew this was coming. We had heard his hateful Islamophobic rhetoric all through his campaign in the news. We had seen his campaign promises to ban Muslims from this country and prevent them from coming here to make their lives really difficult here. I even, I even told my parents to, after the election, after he was elected, to go visit their family abroad because I didn't know what was coming, but I knew as a Muslim that bad things were coming. So right now, we have a Muslim ban in this country that affects over 150 million people around the world. And that is something that I don't think a lot of people in this country realize. Before I talk about that, I just want to make sure people know also that there is a fourth order that was kind of split off, that was the refugee part of the Muslim ban, that is also a Muslim ban, right? It prohibits people from joining their families here, but it also created a ban on almost entirely Muslim-majority countries. That piece, which is often called the fourth Muslim ban, is held up in the courts. But we still have a Muslim ban in America, which is an incredible disappointment and a shameful mark on our history until the Supreme Court resolves it. So I think the important thing for me is that people showed up and people cared, but people don't know now. So it's on us to make sure that they know. So I'm going to give you three things you can do to make that happen. One, I ask you to educate people, educate people around you that a ban is in effect, that 150 million people around the world are impacted, that people can't see their family members, can't show up for weddings, can't show up for funerals, students can't be educated here, professionals, researchers, they can't come here, and employers aren't able to get the employees that they need here. Refugees aren't able at times to come here. Two, I need you to share the stories of people that are being impacted so that people actually see the human impact of what is happening in this country. If you, if you look within your communities, you will find stories, you will find people impacted. If you go to our website at aclu.org, Year of the Ban, you will find stories of tons of Muslims impacted. I encourage you to read them, to share them, and to encourage other people to submit their stories so that we can make what the human impact of this known. And then three, I would ask you to call on your communities. Call on your community members, on your local and elected officials, and call on your members of Congress to speak out against this. Hey, I'm from the ACLU. We're going to fight this in the courts. There's no question about that. It's more than the courts. So the effects of this are being seen all the way to the ground. People are, Muslims are being attacked in their local communities. Religious institutions are being attacked. Children are being harassed in schools, both by students and by teachers. We have to make sure that we have our community stand up against this. It has to happen, not just in the courts, but in our homes, in our streets, and in our schools, too. Thank you. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what America looks like. This is what America looks like. Show me what America looks like. This is what America looks like. Next, I want to bring up the Director of National Policy and Advocacy for the South Asian Americans Leading Together. Please help me welcome Lakshmi Suradharan. Yeah. 
And since then, this administration has doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down on its racist, white supremacist, anti-Muslim agenda, rife with violent rhetoric, toxic tweets, and polluted policies to institutionalize Islamophobia. And this has deadly consequences on the ground. Next week, we are releasing a report that reveals the level of hate violence and xenophobic rhetoric aimed at South Asian, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, Middle Eastern, and Arab communities since the 2016 presidential election. From election day 2016 to exactly one year later, we documented at least 302 of these incidents aimed against our communities. And not surprisingly, and very sadly, 82% of these were animated by anti-Muslim sentiment. And this marks a 45% increase in hate violence against our communities from the year before leading up to the presidential election cycle. And all of this amounts to levels of violence that we have not seen since the year after 9-11. So, as we've heard from speakers before, we cannot rely solely on the courts. Even though the lower courts have said over and over again that the Muslim ban drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination, the highest court in our nation allowed this ban to go into full effect. And we can't... Shameful. And we cannot rely on members of Congress to do anything either. They have legislation before them that could rescind the Muslim ban with one sweep, and they refuse to even bring it to a vote. So who can we rely on? What can we rely on? what has always been the constant, what we have always relied on, and that is each other, the power of the people. One year ago, our communities assembled in the airports, on the streets, in front of this White House, in front of the Trump Hotel, and all around the country to defend and protect the rights of our community members and all marginalized communities. And we will continue to build that power together. And I'm going to end on a quote by the amazing Arundhati Roy, yes. who says, Another world is possible, and on a quiet day, we can hear her breathing. Nigeria. He represents We Are All America. Please help me welcome Falabi Olakbaju. Hello, DC. 
Hello, brothers and sisters in the struggle. Hello. Well, my name is Falavi Olagbaju. I'm an immigrant from Nigeria and I'm the director for Outreach for Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. So I'm so delighted to be here today. Isn't that a great action? Yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy that we are part of this uh, action. Uh, and I have a message also for the occupant of this uh, of this house. I'm from Nigeria and I'm not going back to my heart. Okay? Yeah. I've been here for more than 30 years. I've put down roots here. I'd like to believe that I'm contributing to the greatness of America. Yeah. Thank you. For those of you who might know today, this action today is brought to you by We Are All America Coalition. Yep. A group of uh, comprised of uh, uh, national resettlement, uh, refugee resettlement agencies, uh, immigrant rights groups, and Muslim faith communities. And we've been doing this, we're coming together for almost a year, and this today is the launch of our action together. And, and this is not just happening in DC, it's happening over more than 60 cities and states in all over the country. It's happening in Columbus, it's happening in Portland, it's happening in uh, Concord, New Hampshire, it's happening all over the country. Because we know this is where the action is. We have to reclaim the values of America. We have to reclaim the values of welcoming immigrants and refugees. We have to reclaim the values of religious uh, protection so that people can worship without, without fear of persecution or violence. We want to uh, be a welcoming uh, country for the immigrants who are coming from Central America, from Honduras, from Guatemala. From we want to make sure that the dreamers have justice, that they are able to leave this country and live without fear. And we want to make sure their parents and their every families are here because they are contributing members of America. We oppose the, this policy that wants to make America white again. We are not going back. America is great because of its diversity. Yeah. The struggle continues. I encourage you all to take it back. Don't make this a one-day event. Continue the action. Continue mobilizing. Continue educating and. Justice is ours. History is ours. We are on the right course of history. Yeah. We are on the wrong, wrong end of history. And we will prevail. Say it loud. Say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud. Say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud. Say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Our next speaker, please help me welcome Dr. Maha Halal from Justice for Muslims Collective. Maha! So I want to start off with a chant to get things going, because um, I know you all have been here for about an hour and a half. So when Muslim rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up fight back! When Muslim rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up fight back! When Muslim rights are under attack, what do we do? Stand up fight back! So like many of you, I have been in the streets protesting from last year, and there seems to be no end to the way that this administration is targeting Muslims. So it's important that we stay committed, we stay involved, and we keep coming to protest, to rally. But it's also important that we keep the Muslim ban in context, to recognize that the Muslim ban is just one piece of institutionalized Islamophobia that has happened over the course of the war on terror. 
Yes. You come here yes. for the Muslim ban. Remember that you're coming here because of the illegal use of drones. Remember that you're coming here because of torture. Yes. 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 And I want to recognize an important thing in the narrative that needs to be had in these conversations around the Muslim ban. The U.S. is systematically destroying countries that are on the ban. Okay? So when we talk about the U.S.'s responsibility to admit immigrants and refugees, it's because the U.S. is destroying the countries from which they come. into the United States. Is that a crisis? No. So it's important to educate your communities. It's important to educate the American Education. public because we need to talk about what's happening in this country on a systemic level to Muslims. We need to think about all the things that have happened and we need to think about how we can resist institutionalized Islamophobia and the Muslim ban. No Muslim ban ever. to all of you uh, for, for joining us. Uh, we have two uh, wonderful speakers left, and then we'll have Noel come up and talk about logistics about uh, folks that are joining on the march. So please help me welcome our next speaker, another organization that has been doing phenomenal work and pushing back against uh, the Muslim and refugee ban, a great colleague and a friend of mine who serves as a policy counsel for the International Refugee Assistance Project. Please help me welcome Adam Bates. Hey Adam! Thank you so much and thanks for sticking around. Uh, I'm an attorney with the International Refugee Assistance Project. Uh, thank you, that's the appropriate response. <laughs> when, when the Muslim ban came down uh, on this day last year, IRAP organized hundreds of legal professionals to descend on the airports and to protect the rights of the people targeted by this ban. People were in the air. People who were in the air when the ban came down were picked up at the airport and sent back to wherever they came from. Families were torn apart. Legal permanent residents were deported under this ban. Uh, IRAP continues to be both a plaintiff and a litigator in the, the lawsuits challenging both the refugee ban and the Muslim ban, that which will be resolved eventually in the Supreme Court. Uh, but what I really want to say today is this is not new. This is not a new phenomenon in America. I saw a sign earlier that said the Chinese Exclusion Act was wrong in 1882 and it's wrong now. Yes! Is Islamophobia new? No. no. Is war new? No. no. Is discrimination new? No. Nativism new? No. So what I'm asking, what I'm asking for everyone here is for this not to be a one-year thing, for this not to be a one administration thing, for this to be an everyday, every administration for the rest of our lives fighting against these institutions that are ancient in this country. That's what we owe to ourselves, that's what we owe to each other, and that's what we owe to every person on this planet who needs a refuge. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. Uh, so our last speaker for this afternoon 
is from uh, Church World Service, who, as many of you know, is another refugee resettlement agency. Please help me welcome Reverend Ruben Eccles. We are in a battle, y'all, so we got to get ready. We got to get fired up. I don't know I don't know what you come to do, but I come to take back America for, uh, for all of us. I also come uh, right now to uh, have a little apology because there are these, these wolves in sheep clothing that, that call themselves evangel evangelistic Christians oh, yeah. who, are, who are giving support to this hate and this, this mess that we have in the White House. And so uh, we want to say all of us Christians ain't like that, right? We, we, we're right here because we are united. I don't know, what, uh, I don't know about you, but when, when, when they were praying and, and they, we turned this place into a sanctuary, this is what democracy looks like. This is what heaven looks like. This is, this is what power looks like. When we stand together, when we are all together, this is what power looks like. This is what they are afraid of. This is what this is what they don't want to see. And so we're going to stand. I don't know. Did y'all hear all these speeches today? Are y'all ready to get fired up for this? the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means we don't have to welcome people here. We, we can't kick nobody out of their own house. This is all of our houses. You can't ban me from my house. Muslims were here from the start of this country. And so, and so, and so we, 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 when we come together, and one of the things that we're going to have to do, how many folks voted? I ain't heard too much about that today, but that is that is our voice, right? And that is what we're gonna have to lift our voice and sing this. And come November, we're gonna lift it, and it's gonna be a rousing voice. It's gonna be a voice that is like a mighty rushing wind that's gonna come into this country. Yep. All right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, oh. This this is the power. We have nothing to fear because they're trying to drive fear. But with us together, we're going perfect love, we'll cast out fear. Perfect love for each other, we'll cast out fear. I'm going to say it again, perfect love, we'll cast out fear. They talk about money and all the stuff, that, but all the money, you can have all the money and we can lose our soul. This is a battle for our souls right here. And as we stand together, as we lift each other up, as we pray together, as we hug one another, as we pray for one another, as we fight for one another, as we shield one another, as we stand for one another, as we chant for one another, as we... Amen, brother. We're going to take America and make it perfected America, right? It's becoming the perfected union. It's becoming the perfected union. And they don't like the look of perfection. <laughs> this right here is the look <coughs> of perfection. I believe already, we've already prayed together, really. When we came and we lifted our voices, um, some will bow and kneel, some walk, but I believe we've already lifted our voices in prayer. And so right now, i just like you to stand with me with your hands in the air. I'm going to go on one knee. Yes. In, solidarity, in solidarity with my brothers who have been um, killed in, on the streets. And so, let us pray, just quickly. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise. We bow before you. We love you. And your love is being shared through every face, through every uh, member that is here today. 
And so we say thank you for our creator. And all together we say amen. Amen. You have been listening to Voices from the Rally, Muslim Refugee Ban, a year of resistance held January 27th in front of the White House. The action was sponsored by more than 15 organizations, including Veterans for American Ideals, the National Immigration Law Center, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Richard Wolf. The music we played this hour included the Howard University Gospel Choir singing at the Fossil Free Fast Town Hall held January 27th at Lisner Hall, Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z and Alicia Keys, and Holy War by Alicia Keys. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be signing books Saturday, February 3rd, noon to 6 p.m. at the Know Thyself Book Fair at the Roots Public Charter School, 15 Kennedy Street in Northwest D.C. For more information, call 202-841-2422. Keep raising your voice. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.